Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Ballad to Talk About. It is Saturday the 23rd of April 2022 and joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Sam. Hey Sam, we're back after a short break. I I find the lack of tan very disappointing on your end, but last week suddenly felt different, didn't it? It did indeed. I mean, unfortunately, I don't tan um, when I go away, but uh, yeah, it was a very nice weekend um, away for me. And uh, don't worry, I did keep up with um, about to talk about antics because one of the things I did do while I was in Seville, as as Chern well knows, is I went to see the Andalusian parliaments just to contextualise what it looks like ahead of us covering their election later in the year. But um, how are you getting on, Chern? Uh, I'm doing fine, thank you. And let me just say that that is only the type of holiday that probably you and I would go to. Go to the <laughs> local parliament building and see to have a look or to go for a tour. But anyway, we've got a packed show coming up, so let's let's move on. And we thought we'll start off this week's episode by, and if long-time listeners would know, is that we occasionally like to ask each other topical quiz questions and to share or to share our thoughts on some pertinent political topics. So Sam, yesterday was Earth Day. And so therefore, this week's question, we thought I thought it'd be a good quiz question to ask is that as of time of recording, which is the 23rd of April, how many green parties are in the national governments of Europe? So I think after collating my my thoughts and my notes that I've come up with the answer of seven. Um, and I'll list them off just to see if I've covered all bases. I think we've got Austria, Germany, Iceland and Ireland, Finland, Luxembourg and Belgium. Have I covered all bases there? Yep, exactly. It is seven magnificent countries that have uh, green parties in government. But we should note that they're all junior, uh, with the exception of Iceland, they're all junior parties in the coalition. Mm -hmm. And what I found really interesting is that isn't that not only is the green parties in government at a national level but they're also in government at the sub-national level for example in scotland they're also in government in 10 out of the 16 um german states but the other thing that i looked at was the portfolios that the green parties held and what i found very interesting is that i often assume that green parties would hold the environment portfolio because that is something which, of course, as a green movement that they were founded upon. But interestingly, the Icelandic government, which is, of course, led by Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir, doesn't hold the environment portfolio. In fact, it is the centre-right independence party that holds the environment portfolio. So I thought that was something that was quite interesting and a bit of a deviation from other, um, other environment parties as well. Um, another thing that I also found interesting was... Uh, Four out of the seven, so the majority of them held the transport portfolios in the governments as well. So we're looking at uh, we're looking at Austria, we're looking at uh, uh, Ireland, we're looking at Luxembourg, and we're looking at Belgium as the countries that in which the Green parties held the transport portfolio. So mm. I thought these were quite some interesting things. Any thoughts you have on these two points? Yeah, I think those are both quite interesting because especially the environment front, you would almost think potentially it seems a bit of a gimmick to give the environment portfolio to a Green Party in government. But nevertheless, I think it's one of those portfolios that the party would really enjoy having. The interesting thing that you point out, Iceland is the one that is, doesn't do that, um, which I think a lot of that comes from the fact that 
The left-green movement, as is the, the Green Party that's in government in Iceland, is not usually counted amongst the pantheon of European Green Parties. In fact, it's taken to be more of a centre-left, left-wing party first and Green Party second, um, instead of all the other ones that we're talking about that are in government. So I wonder if that also has something to do with it, because as we talked about at the time, Green politics in Iceland is slightly different to green politics everywhere else because of the the way that the country functions and because its reliance on geothermal energy already is exceptionally high in terms of um, in terms of European standards of renewables. No, I think that there's something to say. Although I do know that in Katrin Jakobsdottir's first cabinet, the left green movement did hold the environment portfolio, but gave it up in the second term. I think something to add to that is that given that you already have high levels of renewable energy as your domestic energy source, I think it is striking to me that the two portfolios that they hold in government, uh, one of it is the social affairs and labour market portfolios, and that could definitely appeal to that left-wing element of the left-wing movement. But I think they also, what interesting is they also hold the food, fisheries and agriculture portfolio as well. And I think the, from that point of view, it suggests to me that obviously agriculture is one of the big carbon emitters. It's a, it's, a, it's a policy area that a lot of work has to do to try and reduce your carbon footprint. So potentially from the left green movement's perspective, they think that probably more work has to be done in this area in order to achieve, uh, to be truly green. And that's why they opted to take the agriculture portfolio as the environment energy perspective, a lot of the work has already been done. Um, so that could be a little bit of thinking on the left-green movement perspective. And we should note that I think that makes it really interesting that um, in Iceland, as in Germany, the Green parties hold the agriculture portfolios. And I remember there was, um, the, there was some controversy at the start when the Green Party in Germany was given the agriculture portfolio. And I think in many ways, you know, the natural environment is also, you know, there's a lot of intersection of a lot of rural issues as well. So I think it could be seen as a natural fit for many of these green parties as well as a natural extension potentially in the years to come. The evidence does also suggest that many green parties in Europe have also become extended. For example, in Finland and in Germany, they hold a foreign affairs portfolio. Uh, for example, you know, in Luxembourg, justice and defense, same as Australia also hold a justice portfolio as well. So I think what we're seeing as the green parties mature is that the, the government portfolios they are occasionally assigned to is expanding beyond the remits of environment and transport. No, that's a very interesting discussion to kick off this week's podcast. And I'm sure as we get a sense across Europe and also extending into the wider world as well, green politics in many forms seems to be on the rise, whether it's based within green parties themselves or featuring more heavily in the manifestos of, of some of the main parties within the countries. And I think particularly something we'll be keeping an eye on is how the green movement transitions into Eastern European countries, because I think that's something that that green, green politicians and people who are interested in green issues are really trying to crack the code of. And I think that's something we'll be paying attention to as well. And, and of course, as, as Earth Day comes and goes along, climate issues continue to play a prominent role in deciding elections on this podcast. I'm sure we'll be covering many more green parties to come. Anyway, this week, we'll be focusing unsurprisingly on the first round of France's presidential election, which, as our title song very proudly suggests, and I think finally is a song Sam and I both thoroughly 
agree with. We'll see a rerun of 2017 where incumbent French President Emmanuel Macron will face against far-right leader Marine Le Pen. And this week, we'll be particularly focusing on the candidates that did not make it into the second round, whereas next week, we'll be breaking down those second round results and how Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen performed in the first round. But before we talk all things France, Sam, we've been watching a development bubbling over the last couple of weeks, and it's been turned out to be quite the constitutional crisis in Pakistan, hasn't it, Sam? It really has. And I think we have learned a lot over the past few weeks just how the constitution of Pakistan seems to operate, because it sensed that a few weeks ago that nobody, even within the Pakistani government, seemed to understand the limits of the constitution around these areas. So just to tell a brief story about what's gone on, but former Pakistan cricket captain and Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted um, to what, just, just, over, just under a couple of weeks ago in a vote of no confidence within the Pakistani parliament. And this came after several allies in his coalition government withdrew the support from the government. However, the real constitutional crisis moment came when the, the Speaker of the Deputy Assembly, Kasim Khan Suri, dismissed the initial attempt for a no-confidence vote, saying that it was against the constitution, which pledges loyalty to the state. And then... The what, what followed that was that Imran Khan advised the president to dissolve the assembly and call for a fresh general election to try and solve this impasse. Then in comes another institution of government, the Supreme Court, who with a 5-0 unanimous ruling, the deputy speaker's ruling to dismiss the motion was actually unconstitutional, thereby allowing the no confidence motion to proceed. And Despite attempts at filibustering this motion, it did pass with 174 votes, just two more votes than the 172 required for the motion to pass. And the next day, Shabazz Sharif, the former chief minister of Punjab and brother of former prime minister Nawaz Sharif, was elected unopposed as the next prime minister of Pakistan. So it all unfolded very quickly for Imran Khan in the grand scheme of things. So, Chern, I wonder if um, you could just give us some some ideas on what caused this to happen, because it continues the trend of no Pakistani prime minister since independence serving a full term. However, it is the first time that a prime minister has been ousted in a no-confidence vote. So what went wrong and why did it unravel seemingly so quickly from a position where Imran Khan, I think, I don't know if you think this is a fair point, but was seen as one of the more popular prime ministers of Pakistan. And many people, many observers thought that he was finally going to break that curse of um, not serving out a full term as Pakistani prime minister. Indeed, you are. And it's very clear that since his ouster, that he still retains a degree of support around the country. Um, and his supporters have so far maintained their rage at the change in government in Pakistan. Before we, I would like to focus this answer primarily on the policy positions or the initiatives that have gone wrong for Imran Khan's government. Before we talk about the perennial problem or big elephant in the room in Pakistan, politics, which is the relationship between an elected civilian government and the military, which we cannot escape and I think we should talk a bit about later. But I point to both foreign policy and domestic political issues that have led to Imran Khan's downfall. So for example, 
Like in many countries around the world, cost of living is proving to be a big issue in Pakistan at the moment. You know, um, that there was perceived inaction on, on this count as well. And uh, the gov- general governance issues, economic governance issues appear to be a big problem, despite claiming that he will never ever go to the IMF for a loan. That's exactly what Imran Khan did in asking for a six billion US dollar IMF loan to deal with the debt crisis and the balance of payments, sorry, the balance of payments crisis caused by a falling rupee and the fact that Pakistan had to import as well. And we also have foreign policy decisions as well. Not only is uh, differences in the approach with India, which is of course Pakistan's big regional rival, has inflamed tensions. And crucially, there was a rip in regards of how you deal with the war in Ukraine, for example. Now, famously, um, Imran Khan visited Russian President Vladimir Putin on the 24th of February 2022. This is the exact same day that Russia decided to invade Ukraine. Imran Khan was there on other businesses, but he elected to continue with his bilateral meetings with the Russian president, to some chagrin of many of and horror of many of the Pakistani establishment. But I thought before this was quite interesting, actually, um, was there was criticism um, over the choice that Imran Khan had of his chief minister of Punjab, which of course we mentioned is that Shabazz Sharif is the former chief minister of Punjab. And traditionally, this role is seen as particularly important in Pakistan because Punjab is the most populous province there. But he faced criticism over the appointment of Usman Budda. And it was alleged, although never confirmed, that his wife, his third wife, um, was some kind of spiritual guide, warned him that if Busta was ever sacked, his government would collapse and he had to keep him there as a good omen. But uh, I think those kind of rumours just fed this perception that Imran Khan, despite his rhetoric or want to change and promising to govern Pakistan properly, ultimately failed, particularly on the economic front. Yeah, I think I think you've you've covered a lot of very interesting bases there and I I just want to jump in specifically on the last thing you said about the Chief Minister of Punjab because you did mention earlier on that um, the military played a large role in Pakistani politics and continues to do so and one of the reasons it seemed that the military as a faction turned away from Imran Khan throughout his um, premiership was over this decision because the army were criticizing um, Imran Khan specifically for his appointment of Usman Buzdar in as the chief minister of Punjab because they were saying that it would lead to the govern lead to the state of Punjab being poorly governed and poorly administrated and for the most populous region if the military view that to sort of be an unstable unruly area of Pakistan they describe that as poor governance all the way up to the top and I think that contributed a large way into why they as a faction turned away from Imran Khan as well in in national office. Yeah I I think now on the military point I think um, obviously, why the military plays such an important role, they organize two coups against elected sitting governments. So I think it's important to provide a bit of context. Both President Zia Al-Fayed and President Musharraf were both uh, overthrew civilian governments as well. And there were, it was often thought that the military establishment covertly backed Imran Khan when he first became prime minister in 2018. So, for example, um, it was reported that 
if you are media that reported sympathetically on his opponents, you reportedly had your distribution curtailed. And some candidates were even cajoled and or coerced into joining P, uh, PTI, which is Imran Khan's political party. And when the army became frustrated, there were, um, and I think what happened is that in the process of when several allies withdrew, because that was the main thing that caused this entire constitution crisis to erupt, that came after a very important signal by the chief of army that the army was neutral. And I think that sent a very important signal to many parliamentarians in particular that Imran Khan had lost the backing of the military. And it was often assumed that I don't think Imran Khan had a lot of support, particularly among the parliamentarians, even within his own party, particularly if you were cajoled into joining PTI in the first place because of the military. And so therefore, that important signal by the military really was the start, really, that statement of neutrality was really the start of Imran Khan's mm. downfall. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, just to illustrate how treacherous the um, relationship between Imran Khan and his party was becoming, after a few members of PTI crossed the floor to join the opposition, Imran Khan attempted in the Supreme Court to actually deem that crossing the floor of the National Assembly was unconstitutional to try and prevent more people following suit because it was he was getting the sense that his grip on the PTI and actually the PTI the, the members of the PTI's loyalty to the party was just rapidly disintegrating as well and I think that's that's another reason why opposition parties ended up why well, some coalition partners ended up deserting him in the final days and ended up voting for the no confidence motion because if they couldn't guarantee that he had his own party on board with him how was it going to be sustainable for the coalition to continue being able to get majorities in the national assembly as well i mean but saying that imran khan has far from faded into the background in Pakistani politics because in fact just two days ago he held a huge rally in Lahore where he was demanding fresh elections and still wanting to go to the polls ahead of the elections that are due next October. So I guess Chern watch this space because perhaps Imran Khan's time at the top of Pakistani politics is not quite over yet but there is still a long way to go, and at least for now, his premiership has has definitely come to an end. Do you think, therefore, Sam, that looking forward, um, that the army now being having seen what Imran Khan's governance would be like, that the next election in twenty twenty three, when it's due to take place, would be a lot harder for Imran Khan, because we know that you know, given the alleged support that he had, and the fact that it seems that the relations between uh, Army Chief General Bagua has and him has completely broken down and the fact that mm. Bagua himself could potentially stay in office as Army Chief a bit longer than what uh, what was intended that that could pose a problem? I think it will pose a problem because as we've alluded to quite strongly in this section that relationship is absolutely key it seems for maintaining a strong functioning government in Pakistan because as we've seen in the past the military does have the power to bring a premiership to an end even without these no confidence votes that Imran Khan was experiencing however the one asterisk I will say to that is 
One of the big arguments of the PTI and Imran Khan about his removal has been that they think it was a conspiracy with the United States, between the military and the United States to, to bring him down. And I mean, we don't know that how much truth is in that accusation. However, but but I think if that kind of message does take grip amongst the Pakistani population, I can see a world in which Imran Khan's political future is not doomed, because I wonder if the population actually thinks, well, this was a complete conspiracy by an international actor, and they tried to remove our prime minister and succeeded. So when we get the next electoral opportunity to show them how how dissatisfied we were with that, then perhaps they will do that. But Perhaps that's also a naive view of the influence of the military, because I think if you don't have that crucial backing going into an election, there are certain tactics that just won't quite be able to stand up against um, the, the influence that they have around the country in determining who Pakistan's prime minister does become. I think that point on anti-Americanism is particularly true because don't forget, this is Pakistan we're talking about as well. The Americans, after the war on terror, had a big role to play in Pakistan, both in terms of providing military aid and there's quite a large swell of anti-Americanism in Pakistan itself. So I definitely think that is something at the people level that is potentially at odds with what the military establishment who were largely trained in um in America is potentially at odds with. It kind of feeds into this disassociation that Imran Khan is trying to portray himself as a man of the people against this establishment, this populist rhetoric we see in many Western countries. And what I think is particularly fascinating is that Imran Khan himself, even in his short tenure, has redrawn the political lines in Pakistan to a very large extent because the government that has replaced him, uh, Shabazz Sharif, is actually a coalition between the Pakistan Muslim League, which is where the Sharifs have you know, long dominated that party, and the Pakistan People's Party, which is the party that used to be led by former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. And historically, the Bhuttos and the Sharifs alternated power and hated each other. But the fact that Imran Khan has, was able to, to ensure, to, as a force, was able to bring these two historic parties that so traditionally disliked each other together, so much so that there are rumors that um, Balawi of Bhutto Zadari, who is the son of um, uh, son of uh, Benazir Bhutto, is could potentially become Pakistan's next foreign minister in a Sharif-led government, suggesting to me that even in a short time in power, that um, that Imran Khan has fundamentally redrawn the political boundaries of Pakistan, and I suppose Imran Khan as a Quickly, think analogy should go. He might be bowled out this time round, but there's suddenly, I'm sure you agree, Sam, another innings left in him, isn't it? Yeah, I think we just need to see is this a one day international or is there a test match still to come? <laughs> so, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. And in this next section for the rest of the podcast, we'll be talking about the French, the results of the first round of the presidential elections. So before we dive into analysis and talking about the results, let me just quickly give you the actual results itself. So the first round was won by the incumbent French President Emmanuel Macron, who got 27.9% of the vote, or 9.8 million votes. In second place, and also advancing to the second round, is Marine Le Pen's National Rally, who got 23% of the vote, a uh, 23% of the vote and 8 million votes itself. Third place was Jean-Luc Mélenchon, 
who the left wing the left wing firebrand getting twenty two percent of the votes, about seven point seven million votes. Eric Zemmour has two point five got two point five million votes, or seven percent. And the fact that it's taken us to five four candidates beat the first of the traditional main party, I think, really says it all. With Valerie Pecres of the Republicans getting. 4.8% of the vote and 1.7 million votes, which is the lowest vote ever for the party. Um, Yannick Jalot of the Greens got 4.6% uh, of, of the vote, which is about 1.6 million votes. John LaSalle, and uh, another left-wing candidate, got 1.1 million votes, or 3.1%. Fabienne Roussel of the French Communists got 802,000 votes, or 2.3% of the vote. Nicolas Dupont Agard, who, who um, got of uh, the right wing Dupont La France, got 2% of the vote. And the reason why we're going down so low is because I really find it, in frankly, astonishing, Sam, that we had to get that low in order to get to the socialist candidate and incumbent Paris mayor Anne Hedego, who got 1.8% of the vote and 619,000 votes, which I frankly still surprises me to this day, even though we long talked and alluded to this podcast about the slow decline of the socialists. So Sam, I suppose a good place to start would be is, were you surprised by when the exit poll was released about these results? Um, I wasn't particularly surprised because the, the top two candidates, I think we'll both agree, in the days leading up to the election almost seemed guaranteed. I think what everyone was keeping an eye on was how close their results were going to be to one another because a few polls in the days leading up to the election suggested that Marine Le Pen might just sneak into first place in the first round. But having a margin of about 5% is on the, on the higher end of my personal expectations but didn't seem completely out of the question. So in terms of the headline results, I wasn't particularly surprised. What did surprise me was how close Jean-Luc Mélenchon came to Marine Le Pen's 23%. And um, we know that Jean-Luc Mélenchon performed very well in 2017 as well. And in the days leading up to the election, his poll numbers were rising. But he did seem to be quite a league away from Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen in the days leading up to it. So I don't think anybody envisioned Mélenchon getting this close to being in the second round. So I think that's my biggest takeaway um, before we even dive into the fact that I think Valérie Pécresse underperformed everybody's expectations, not least, I think, I imagine, her own. Yeah, um, there was reports I was reading that um, when the exit poll came out at her headquarters, they were frankly shocked, to be honest, because 5% in France, and the fact she got 4.78% to be exact, is a crucial number in France, because it means that if you get past 5% of the vote, you could be reimbursed by your campaign, um, by the public, by the taxpayer for your campaign. And the fact that she failed to do that meant that the lay Republicans are in frankly dire financial state at the moment. I read this phenomenal statistic that the party itself is about 18 million in terms of, uh, it loaned itself 18 million for the first round of the campaign. And Valerie Pecres herself put in 5 million euros into her own campaign. Now, she kind of, I'm not, she is from, she's married to one of the France's biggest industrialists, but I just think that that amount of loans poured in 
particularly with France's parliamentary elections coming not soon after, in June, in fact, so it's less than two months' time, is a precarious moment for the Le Republican Party that I frankly did not um, expect, to be honest, that they would get below 5%. I think, to me, whilst I was expecting it, the fact that we did see the socialists at 1.8%, considering just 10 years ago, both the major parties got 56% of the votes in the first round. 10 years later, 7%. I mean, that to me just tells you the story of uh, how the traditional parties in France, and it's still galling and surprising to see the socialists at 1.74%. I don't know about you, Sam. Oh, I'm, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think we all thought that Benoit Hamon's performance in 2017 was going to be the lowest of the low in terms of the big party's performance. But now we're in a situation where Valerie, Valerie Pécresse's vote share added to Anne Hidalgo only just exceeds what Benoit Hamon got on his own in 2017. So it really is quite astonishing. And I mean, while we were trying to take in what happened at the top of this race on a couple of Sundays ago when we had this first round result, I think it took us a while to then look further down and think, oh my goodness, they didn't just miss out on the second round. They absolutely tanked in this race. And Anne Hidalgo, that was sort of seen as a inevitable um, as per opinion polls and as per just how the campaign was going. But particularly Valerie Pérez's numbers, I don't think we quite expected them to be that astonishingly poor. I totally agree with you on that. I, I think from from your let's talk about Valerie Pécresse because I think because I remember having a conversation with you, Sam, a couple of months ago where we said, "Hang on, this woman could really be the dis- big disruptor in this presidential election," and it absolutely did not turn out to be the case. I remember there were polls putting her in the second round and defeating Emmanuel Macron, whereas, you know, these results clearly show that we were, that was a clearly far-felt different political time even just a couple of months ago. So I suppose the first step is what happened to Valerie's Pécresse campaign over the last couple of months? What fueled her rise and mm. therefore downfall? Yeah, I mean, just over a year, just under a year ago, we did a podcast um, about France during the Euros last year, where we were talking about, did we think it was going to be Macron versus Le Pen again? And both of us were talking about, well, potentially yes, but I think we wondered if the main reason the Republicans faltered so much in 2017 was very much a Francois Fillon issue linked to the scandal of uh, um, employing members of his family in the campaign that became a big problem for the Republicans in 2017. But it does seem that the problems are a little bit more profound than that in this election and i think i've got a couple of theories one is i think valerie pecres ended up representing exactly what this election didn't need in a candidate and that is that she is absolutely a member of um the french elite in so many ways i mean it's the kind of eaton equivalent in the uk for those for our uk listeners because she went to some of the most expensive and high-class schools in France. She's had ministerial jobs, she's had multiple mandates in Parliament. And I think in an election where two of the top candidates were Le Pen and Mélenchon, who are champions of the underdog and champions of the ignored in France, I think that kind of background doesn't really fly. And sort of when that's represented already in the incumbent president, and then the opposition is the the more underdog ignored story. 
I don't think Valerie Picres's personal story fits well into this election and what voters were looking for. But aside from her personal background, I think also the political space was a problem, particularly for Valérie Pécresse, who in the grand scheme of centre-right French politics is a very liberal, very pro-EU candidate. Well, does that ring any bells? Because that seems exactly the kind of political space that Emmanuel Macron is going to operate in. So if the Republicans are not trying to be a little bit further right than Emmanuel Macron and combat head-on the Rally Nationale, I just don't know if they have that kind of a political space in which to operate very well. And what ended up happening really was there was a conflict between layers of the Republican Party, between Valérie Pécresse and specifically between Eric Ciotti as well in the Republicans, about fighting a war on two fronts. And all it ended up doing was not really pleasing either side because you're making promises to both at the expense of the other at exactly the same time. So it felt like both the further right people and the centrists couldn't trust what you were saying and didn't really know if you were selling anything to them. And I think it's becoming that is a problem for the Republican Party. And it's the same problem that the socialists were experiencing both in 2017 and in this cycle as well, is that Macron has completely absorbed the centre of French politics. And if you're trying to get a little bit of that space in this climate, you're you're not going to be as successful, I think. I, I agree with all that. And I think the big thing is the Le Republicans are fundamentally split into two factions, actually. We have a traditional party, the traditional where it's the traditionalist, I would argue, where is where Valerie Pécresse is one. And I should know that Valerie Pécresse herself left lay Republicans 2019 because she felt it had drifted too far to the right, actually. So she has really planted herself in that camp versus a sort of nationalist one, which kind of has much more sympathies with Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen. And I think you're right that the evidence of the fractured primary, I think what's key to me was that in that primary itself, that which she won, she only won about 60% of the vote to Eric Sinotti's 40%. So it suggests to me a fractured party that she was unable to piece back together in time for the presidential election. And crucially as well, I think Valerie Pécresse never won the explicit endorsement of former President Nicolas Sarkozy. And although he only served a one-term French president, he's still quite influential within the Republicans itself and very much more associated with the right of the party. Whereas, you know, it could be argued that Pécresse is more, a, you know, she was a former designated counsel to Jacques Chirac, who famously said that not one vote from his camp should go to the far right. So these tensions with the Republicans, she was never able to smooth them over and bring the two groups together in time mm. for the presidential I wonder election. if... I wonder if the Republicans never really recovered from the shock of 2017, because really that election in its early days should have been handed on a plate to the Republican Party. It was Francois Fillon's Toulouse and he lost it. And I just wonder if the Republican Party kind of lost their way at the same time, because they were probably going back to the drawing board thinking, what on earth happened? Because... The socialists were absolutely doomed. Emmanuel Macron had just started up his own party. And the main challenger we were facing was Marine Le Pen, who's toxic to a certain proportion of the French population. So I wonder if 2017 just really 
knocked the Republicans off kilter. And in the in the last five years leading up to this election, they still haven't managed to to exactly diagnose what went wrong and, and really recover from it. And I think crucially as well, I don't think that they saw this coming because you the French regional elections held the year before, the lay Republicans got, you know, 30% of the vote in the first round and topped the second round with 39%. So the party apparatus seemed to be in good health heading into the presidential election. And what I think is really interesting is that the socialists and the lay Republicans seem to have very strong local routes. They're able to still perform well in regional elections, for example. But at the national level, their parties are just completely smashed. And that disconnect from what you feel on a regional level versus at a national level. Or conversely, the inability of Les, uh, of Marine Le Pen's uh, national rally and Emmanuel Macron's La Republique and homage to, con- to translate their national support into regional level support, I think is really fascinating, considering just how different these first round French presidential election results are to the regional elections held last year. No, absolutely. But I think what we can certainly agree on is that the Republicans have yet more soul searching to do after this election, because this the Republican Party is the party of Nicolas Sarkozy. It's the political tradition that brought us figures like Jacques Chirac. And now they're sitting in fifth place in a presidential election where the socialists aren't the problem. Um, it's two relatively new political groups that you're having to fight. And I think when the Republicans go away from this, I just wonder if they're in a position from which recovery is going to be incredibly challenging. But I think the one glimmer of hope for them, as you said, is the fact that their regional routes and the party infrastructure lower down the ballot seems to be in reasonably good health. And if that were also faltering, I would think that the Republicans are in a very, very precarious position. But they are going into these national legislative elections cash starved. I think they're heading into results in two months time, which are going to be a, a complete make or break situation. Because if the Republicans were to lose a, a huge chunk of their national legislative representation, then I think that is one more nail in the coffin for for a, once the, a great centre-right tradition in French politics. And uh, if they continue on this trajectory, then the kind of politics being carved out by Macron in the centre and Le Pen on the far right are going to become increasingly the main stays of French politics. And uh, that is that spells completely bad news for the Republican Party. Yeah, I think just on that point about the fact that we've got a far right leader and a centrist leader, I think there's just simply no space for the Republicans to operate. And Valerie Pecres herself, I mean, let's talk about the not only the party, let's focus on the candidate, because I think she made fundamental missteps within, within the presidential election campaign, chief among which is the fact that I think she portrayed a lot of inauthenticity because she realised that obviously with a fractured party, she's from the pro-EU, she has to appeal to some of Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen voters who were doing quite, and particularly both of them were doing relatively around the same level of support as her at that time when she became the candidate. So in March, for example, she gave a speech where she um, used um, far-right slogans to talk about migrants and also talked about the Great Replacement conspiracy theory, which I think damaged all her credibility with moderate candidates as well. It alienated her. And given you have Emmanuel Macron as a can as a 
French president, they could very easily move their voters over to Emmanuel Macron. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has definitely gave probably these moderate center-right voters um, more confidence in Emmanuel Macron's response. And in particular, I suspect that towards the very end, and that could explain why she was polling about 10% in the polls and only about 5% is what she got, under 5% is what she got in the end, was those moderate voters and particularly who probably were more sympathetic to Valerie Pécresse, had they known that Macron would win the first round in a much bigger margin, they probably voted Macron strategically to try and deny Marine Le Pen a first round victory with any momentum that could come out of that. So that's on one hand. And I think on the second hand, what when Valerie Pécresse made those statements regarding migrants and talked about the grace replacement theory, for many conservatives who probably were nervous about her or didn't wasn't her candidate from the very start to be frank it probably just smacked up inauthenticity from her part really and probably where it's like well you know she she's she if you look across her record she's probably one more aligned with the liberal pro-eu this is just her trying to win over our votes it came off inauthentic rather than genuinely liking her appeal don't do you agree with that those two thoughts or camps yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. And I'll just add one thing to that is that she came out of the gates as as the first female nominee of the Republican Party, which is a great achievement. And I think she recognized that herself and wanted to be this kind of feminist trailblazer within French politics. But she made some fundamental missteps in that department as well, because throughout the campaign, she had to um, talk about how she'd reinstated financial aid to anti-abortion movements in the Ile-de-France region. And despite comparing herself to Margaret Thatcher, then said repeatedly that she felt she would govern with a man's grip, which it's not about holding different candidates to different standards. It's just kind of saying that you're you're playing into the wrong kind, the like anti-feminism by saying you're going to govern with a man's grip rather than taking pride in in what she herself brings to the table as well. And I think that disappointed a lot of people who were hoping that France would be able to to get their first female president in this cycle as well. But I mean, another person I think we should talk about before we move on to talk about the third place candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, let's have a quick word on Anne Hidalgo, who was another person who potentially could have been France's first female president in this election, but failed miserably. I mean, Chern, are the socialists in a bigger crisis than the Republicans? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I had to read eight names before I, I had to count that eight names before I could get Anne Hidalgo I mean and the fact that I think what's even more damaging from her perspective is the fact that many centre-left voters polled uh, centre-left candidates did a lot better than her the Greens got more than double the vote same for the the communists got more votes than her John Lou Mélenchon has got you know so much you got she's got less than a million John Lou Mélenchon's got 7.7 .7 million the fact that so many left-wing options are now ahead of the socialists, I think just speaks to me about the depth of the crisis that the socialists are in at the moment. I don't think Anne Hedego did herself any favours from the very get-go when she said that in her re she was, of course, the incumbent mayor of uh, Paris. And during her re-election campaign, she pledged to serve a full term if she ever did so. And the fact that she's running for president, that's a clear breach of what... Um, she promised when she ran for re-election. 
And I don't think those things, but similar to the inauthenticity of Valerie Pécresse, plays well in an electorate that fundamentally distrusts still mainstream parties and mainstream politicians. Do you, what else do you see of what's next for the socialists? Because the Republicans had to do some thinking, but the socialists now have to do even more thinking, isn't it, Sam? I mean, I think the unfortunate thing for the socialists is in this election, they were not just not a factor, they were absolutely irrelevant. They were not part of the conversation at all. In fact, I think a lot of people in France would not even be able to tell you who the socialist candidate for president was, if indeed there was one. Because as you said, I think the left political space in this election was completely absorbed by Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the main stage. And still, because Ma Emmanuel Macron comes from that political tradition and still tries to appeal to that centre-left group of voters as well. So when you have that appeal coming from Macron and you have Jean-Luc Mélenchon as a figurehead for people who want to be even more left-wing than that, then the socialists are just not part of the conversation. And the reason I asked you at the start whether the socialists were in a bigger crisis than the Republicans is because I almost think that the crisis for the socialists is has has finished. I I, do, I don't I really don't see a path back to the front line of national French politics for the socialists in in the medium to short term because I just think that their political space has been completely absorbed. Um, for they have lost their um just like just like Valerie Pécresse, they didn't they will not get their campaign finance refunded but by quite a distance i mean 1.8% is sort of what you would expect from independent candidates in this french presidential election from independents and minor minor parties this is the socialist party prior to emmanuel macron the socialist party represented the last french president francois hollande and they performed disastrously in 2017, and this one was just a complete new low. And I, as I said, I really just don't see the route back to the front line for the socialists in the near future, because I don't think they particularly did much wrong in this election campaign, because Anne Hidalgo is a pretty formidable candidate, really. I mean, I agree with you in terms of she made that mistake of pledging to serve a full term, and that's probably why she only got 1.4% in her own constituency of the Ile-de-France. But um, I, I, I think in previous years, she would have been seen as quite a formidable candidate. She's been mayor of Paris since 2014, and she could, in previous years, have been probably favoured to be France's first female president. And yet we're in a situation where the campaign in the grand scheme didn't do much wrong. It just got no attention and people were not, the, the socialists were not on their radar at all. And I, I think that's the more treacherous thing than anything because with Valerie Pécresse's campaign, we can point to specific things that went wrong, potentially even the legacy of Francois Fillon from 2017. But with the socialists, I'm, I'm struggling to even pinpoint things that, that happened let alone went wrong or right um, because the campaign was that far under the radar. But maybe that's just a slew of negativity towards the socialists. But I just think that their situation is beyond dire. I think this is almost completely irreparable. I think for me, the fact 
the why is irreparable is the fact that their voters, their traditional rusted on supporters, have found other political homes, not only for one election, but this is the second election in which they are rusted on voters. And I think once you lose these core voters you had, it's very difficult for them to get them back. Part of it could be due to still the, and what's more damaging this time around, in my opinion, is the fact that in 2017, you could point to the unpopularity of the then incumbent president, Francois Hollande, I mean, put 4% approval rating at one point as the reasons for why the socialists did appallingly bad. But this time around, they were not running on a record that you could just criticize the incumbent president. And yet they performed significantly worse than they did last time around. So I think to me, that's why this, this election is orders of magnitude worse for the socialists, given the fact that they had no record to go by. I wonder from the French perspective is that even all those time ago is that they still punish Francois Hollande or believe that the socialists had not been out of power for a significant amount of time for them to be warranted a second chance. So that's where I agree with you that potentially in the short to medium term, they could really find themselves out of power for a very long time. But crucially, like the Labour Republicans, is that at a regional level, they are still relatively strong as a grassroots, as a party itself. But with how they translate that regional support into a national support, I just don't have the answer to that at the moment. So I think this is a nice opportunity to move on to talk about where a lot of the socialist votes have been going, which I think a lot of them seem to have been heading in the direction of the third place candidate in this first round, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And when we talk about Jean-Luc Mélenchon, I want to start, Chen, by saying, how did the polls so significantly underestimate Jean-Luc Mélenchon's first round performance? Because it wasn't to do with abstentionism, it seems, because the abstention rate actually ended up lower than the opinion polls were factoring in. So potentially, maybe, maybe it does come from that. Maybe it is that the opinion polls thought that these kind of voters would not vote at all, and then they voted for Mélenchon. But... Where do you think it came from? I think it's a very good idea. And I have a theory is that Jean-Luc Mélenchon, of course, is the far left firebrand of French politics. And I think over the last couple of weeks, as the war of Ukraine has really ground on and we saw the cost of living become a big issue, and we'll talk about the impact of cost of living on the far right later on as well. I think that helped Jean-Luc Mélenchon's campaign in particular as well more government support for the far of, of uh, advocating much more government support is something in which to help deal with the cost of living crisis is one in which his campaign really exploited. And given that issue emerged late in the piece, I wonder if that had potentially helped his campaign as well. I also think as well that for voters of, the, of maybe not the far left, far right, who still distrust Marine Le Pen, but who fundamentally hate it, um, Emmanuel Macron, I'm thinking of those yellow jacket movement supporters in particular. I think Jean-Luc Mélenchon, given that you dislike what, you know, Macron's often been accused as the president of the rich, who still had mistrusted Marine Le Pen for her past. I think therefore for these voters, Jean-Luc Mélenchon proved to be the home that you probably would go to in that scenario for somebody who hates liberal politics, but potentially didn't want to vote for the far right. Do you agree with that theory? Yeah, I, I do completely agree with that. And I think the other the other aspect of this is Jean-Luc Mélenchon performed very well also in 2017. And I think 
he's the kind of candidacy whose vote share wouldn't have particularly changed between 2017 and 2022 because they weren't the kind of people who would be attracted to Macron because of his record in government, because they're exactly the kind of people whose Macron's record in government has disadvantaged. And it, because Jean-Luc Mélenchon, as a person, was standing yet again in this kind of base of support, he is an incredibly popular figure. He he has a lot of echoes, actually. Of I don't want to draw a lazy comparison to to Jeremy Corbyn, but I think a better comparison is someone like Bernie Sanders, who had a very core base of support in a very specific sector of the American electorate, which is people who are definitely not disengaged with politics enough to be on the more anti-immigrant, um, racialist part of politics, but are definitely not engaged with the centre-left, which Macron represents as well. And when the socialists aren't a factor, and when the communists have a very rocky history in France, I think Jean-Luc Mélenchon is a, is a nice place to, to go to. And I think that explains a lot why his support has not particularly changed, but has gone in the upward direction between 2017 and 2022, rather than siphoned off to other candidates. I think the comparison to Bernie Sanders is absolutely a very good comparison because we had two slightly older gentlemen still able to attract a large group of young supporters, which is something I find very interesting between if you compare them both. And crucially, I think, is that both are able to attract a sizable proportion of the, of the electorates in their country. I know that, for example, in John Mélenchon got 3% more, but you know it's still a, quite a healthy base. But crucially as well, I think that these candidates have a highest, a, a relatively low ceiling as well. And in France, it could mean that he could make the second round, given how fragmented the vote was in the sense that, you know, not all, unlike in the US, in the Democratic primary, where all his where Hillary Clinton was able to mop up everyone else's votes in the Democratic primary. But in France, for example, we had many other candidates fighting for the for, for voters who naturally did not like Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So that's why it gave him much more of a chance to make it into the second round. So I think that comparison to Bernie Sanders would be very interesting. I'm curious what these candidates, what his voters would do, because in his um, victory speech, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and we will talk about the far right in a minute, is they, he, put, he said many times that told his supporters to repeat after him not to give a single vote to Madame Le Pen, but will they follow his leader's advice? Because we saw Bernie Sanders supporters endorse, Bernie Sanders himself endorsed Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure whether all of Bernie Sanders' votes did go to Hillary Clinton's. Where do you think these voters would go? Because 7 million votes will probably decide the outcome of the second round. Don't you agree, Sam? Oh, they absolutely will, because I think they're the least clear of all the voters in terms of where their second preferences will go to. And and we had a kind of indication of this, because what the um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party does, instead of explicitly endorsing a candidate, is they take a poll of members um, to decide what the party's position should be. Well, two-thirds of the party backed either abstaining or spoiling the balance in the second round. And then the the rest the majority of the rest of the third supported Emmanuel Mac well, the rest of the third supported Emmanuel Macron because Marine Le Pen was not on this ballot. So in terms of what that means for the second round, I'm I'm not entirely sure because 
these voters are the biggest prize for either the Macron or Le Pen camp. And to be honest, I think it's realistic that both of them could win over these voters because of where their political beliefs or opinions towards Macron particularly stand. Um, my, my hunch is that a majority of Mélenchon's voters will either vote for Macron or not turn out at all. Um, but I don't know, because I think they are within the grasp of Marine Le Pen. And if this race were seeming to narrow in the opinion polls between Le Pen and Macron, I would absolutely point to these voters. But at this stage, it's not doing that. If anything, it's widening towards Macron, which suggests to me that most Mélenchon voters, if they are voting, are peeling off on the Macron side of things. And speaking of, um, uh, as, as it seems to be advantage Macron, I think one of the biggest wells of support that Marine Le Pen can draw on is Eric Zemmour voters, as they both belong to that far-right element. So let's just talk about Eric Zemmour before we round up um, uh, our discussion with our predictions in the second round, is that Eric Zemmour, similar to Valerie Pacres, was riding high in the opinion polls a couple of months ago, but with, I'm sure he will be disappointed if only 7% of the vote, because there were there was, there was at one point, similar to Valerie Pacres, challenging for second place. So I suppose we should end our discussion with a question I asked right at the very start. What caused the rise and downfall of Eric Zemmour? Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint a few reasons why, and I read a really interesting article which pins a lot of this on French election campaign rules. So their theory was that the disproportionate media coverage that Eric Zemmour had in the early days of his candidacy meant that a lot of opinion polls skewed in his favour because people were more aware of his candidacy. But then when the campaign officially began and media coverage has to be neutral, it has to be even and it has to be fairly distributed between all the candidates, um, Zemmour's candidacy sort of either faded into the background or became directly compared to the other candidacies because I think the biggest purpose Zemmour served in this election was almost legitimising Le Pen and making her look not the most far-right person on the ballot paper. And that became even more apparent when you put those two candidates next to each other in the same amount of coverage because you have someone like Eric Zemmour who's had three convictions for inciting hate speech against Marine Le Pen, who, yes, is extremely far-right, yes, is concerning, but is not on the same level as Eric Zemmour. So when you were comparing those two candidates, I think some people who had previously expressed that they were going to vote for Eric Zemmour turned around and said, oh, actually, um, I think I'm going to stick with Le Pen on this on this occasion. And so I think the, the kind of inflated sense of the scope of his candidacy that existed in the early days of the brewing of the campaign just completely faded away when the actual campaign began and they got on the campaign trail, advertising began and media coverage became equitable. And I thought that was an interesting theory and, and I did I did buy it, I think. I, I don't know what you think, Chern. I think for many voters of the far right, what we saw is that Marine Le Pen is a known quantity in France. She ran for the presidential election in 2017 the Le Pen's, of course, her father is very well known in French politics as well. So it's not a new name. And I think particularly for the far right who may not like the establishment very much, you know, the, the new best shiny new toy is particularly something that's particularly attractive. So they, a lot of them gave um, 
Eric Zemmour a look in particularly, and crucially as well, given that Le Pen's niece, for example, Marianne uh, Le Pen, endorsed Eric Zemmour over her aunt. I gave her a big boost of credibility amongst the far-right supporters. But I think what has happened to me is I point to an opinion poll done by Ipsos Polling, which found that um, as more voters got to know Eric Zemmour, the more they disliked him and the more that caused his poll ratings to go down. 65% in an Ipsos poll in March, and with 77% recognition. This was when he was polling high in polls, yet 70% did not know him. When he got the 70% of voters who did know him, two-thirds of them nearly disliked him. So I think that says it all. And by the way, Anne Hedegaard... So it sounds like the idea of Eric Zemmour was more appealing than the reality. Exactly. And by the way, that same poll pointed to the second most disliked candidate was Anne Hedego at 60%, even higher than Marine Le Pen. And I think that really says it all about why the socialists really struggled mm. in this campaign. Mm. So, so that's on the personality front, was um, the product turned out to be a lot worse than the image of the product. But secondly, I don't think you could discourage policy from this because Eric Zemmour really ran his campaign for a lot of it on immigration which frankly was not the main big concern of French voters at this election, which is the purchasing power and cost of living issues. So that's the first thing. And secondly as well, I think unlike Marine Le Pen, who has been there before, he was unable to adapt his campaign to the changing war in Ukraine, for example. So first of all, um, Eric Zemmour's campaign slogans used the letter Z as its candidate um, posters, which was, at the best words, unfortunate, given what we are seeing coming out of Ukraine. But secondly, as well, both are admirers of Vladimir Putin, um, which is, of course, Macron has been trying to run over the last two weeks. But crucially, Marine Le Pen was able to pivot her campaign to talk about the effects of the war, particularly on gasoline prices in particular, and wrap this campaign up for more economic focus on the cost of living. And in fact, Macron is seen as out of touch with the, with the economic ills of the ordinary people. And I think Eric Zemmour failed to adapt his candidacy to that changing uh, political landscape. He lamented the fact, he called the war distraction, which I don't think helped. And he rejected Ukrainian refugees when even his far-right voters were in favour of France having more Ukrainian refugees. In fact, he went so far to even call for a re- that he promised to set up a re-immigration department within the French government if he was to be successful. So I think that that ideological inflexibility caused his ultimate downfall, given the totally changed political landscape we saw after the 24th of February. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. Um, And it's been a nice to cover a lot of the candidates who didn't make it into the second round ahead of tomorrow's second round, which we'll be covering in next week's episode. But before we do that, Chern, predictions. For the second round, very quickly. I have to say, I think Macron will win and it probably will be above with 55% of the vote. What do you say? think, Sam? I agree. I think Macron is going to win. However, I this this might sound like a rogue prediction. I think his um, performance might be up near 60%. I think it might be around just shy of a 60-40 margin, which is a worse margin than he had in 2017, but significantly better than the opinion polls have been predicting in the last couple of weeks. That's that's my thoughts. 
just curious, Sam, and this is a probably a good point to round up. I think I potentially I agree with you because um, Le Pen has traditionally underperformed the opinion polls, although the exception was the first round this time around. There was talk, as you recall, in the last few days of the campaign that uh, Le Pen in particular was uh, potentially could win the first round. Did you give any of those that do you think that was likely? That she could win the first round? Yes. I thought that was always going to be a stretch because I thought that Macron's vote would be more consolidated than hers would be. Um, But I did, at one point, I was thinking, yes, she could potentially do this because if she drains Zemmour down and Macron doesn't drain Valérie Pécresse, then she will probably narrowly perform better than him. But I think given that Pécresse significantly underperformed, um, Macron's vote was always going to be a lot higher than the opinion poll suggested. Well, the good news is we've both given our predictions and probably when this podcast comes out, you'll find that you are either true or have complete egg on your face, isn't it, Sam? Absolutely. Well, but for now, that is it for the latest, latest episode of Ballot to talk about. Do join us again next week when we'll be uh, reviewing the results of French France's second, pres- second round of the presidential election and parliamentary elections in Slovenia, so another country in Europe we haven't talked about, so which should be all very exciting indeed. And as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.